There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, first thing. Chris Clasby, I want to thank you um, ahead of time here before we even start. Like, to thank you for coming on the show to talk to us about some things that I imagine are probably like difficult to talk about at times. Um, yeah, no, I'm happy to be here and real grateful for you guys to to create an opportunity to, I think. Uh, build public awareness around what's important to me and a lot of other people. So, yeah, I'm kind of struggling um, in a way that I usually don't to to begin, uh, like like where to start. Right? Like mm-hmm. I want to ask you, like what adaptive hunting or adaptive fishing, like what that means. But I also want to talk about your personal story of how you came. You know, to, to be in a situation where you needed to become aware of what those things are yourself. What, like, what, what feels more natural to you? Um, either way, maybe first defining what is adaptive hunting, fishing, any kind of adaptive recreation. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so I would say, you know, it's just it's just a person who has a need. Um, 
because they have a particular limitation, whether that's physical or whatever, they they have a need to find a way to be able to pursue the things that they enjoy. And for me, that means hunting, fishing, camping, and stuff like that. And so, you know, like we we kind of have always said that, well, there's two terms. One is adaptive equipment, um, and then that applies to adaptive hunting, fishing, etc. And the other is assistive technology, which is kind of the, the broader field of, you know, the kind of equipment that ranges from communication devices to recreational equipment, computer access equipment, uh, home daily living modifications and equipment. And we've kind of always said that assistive technology can range from uh, a piece of duct tape or baling wire to um, a very, very high-tech communication device that helps someone with no verbal skills be able to communicate through a computer using their eyeballs and a tracking system. So, obviously, there's a, yeah, very, quite a range very wide range. Of, a, wide, yeah. a wide range of technologies. And, and I guess the other important thing is, whatever you're talking about, it's not the actual device or piece of equipment that defines it as adaptive equipment or assistive technology, but rather the way it's used. So, you know, a piece of duct tape is a piece of duct tape, but um, if somebody doesn't have the ability to hold a TV remote, for example, maybe a piece of duct tape sticks it to a coffee table so it won't slide away from them. And that becomes an adaptive technology. Yes. Yeah. In Okay, now, can you explain your own personal limitations to us just so the listeners i, I want to walk people through kind of your your personal journey and sort of your background in the out of doors okay that you that you came up against what i would presume to have seemed like an insurmountable wall in pursuing the activities that you love and then your journey to find a way over or through or under that wall right right okay so well first of all i'm a, qu- a quadriplegic high-level quadriplegic, you know, and they, based on the number of vertebrae, they give it a, give it a denotation. I'm, I'm a C3-4 quad. What does that mean? It means my nerve injury, my spinal cord injury occurred at the level of the third to fourth vertebrae down from the base of my skull. Okay. And so at that level of injury... Um, you know, it, it can affect a person's diaphragm, you know, making them, uh, ventilator dependent. Fortunately, I can breathe. I have a quiet voice, but I can breathe independently. Um, and then I have no, uh, sensation or motor function below that level. So, I yeah, Giannis said that shoulder. you, Giannis told me, I believe that you said you, you cannot. Feel your clavicles, or you Correct. can't. Can't feel your clavicles. It's about there. I, I would say my clavicles are. There's impaired sensation. 
I might be able to, you know, if somebody rubs on it, I, I would probably know that something's happening, but I'm not normally feeling it, if that makes sense. No, it does. It's and when you say, like, when you, when you talk about the ability to feel, mm-hmm. meaning if someone pinched your elbow, you would not know that that was happening. Right. Yep. Yep. So use of, of use of appendages, arms, legs is obviously out of the question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it it gets a little more complicated. Um, part of your body's autonomic system, you know, which motivates your fight or flight response, mm-hmm. um, also has the ability to tell you when something's wrong, where you can't feel it. So. You know, if I drove my wheelchair into a wall or something and broke my toe, I wouldn't feel it. But because of my body's autonomic system, I would probably know something's wrong. Without being really traced, like, how you knew it. Right, yeah. And and then kind of the scary thing about that is when that happens, and so they call it autonomic dysreflexia. And when that happens, typical things are, Profuse sweating, um, unilateral flushing, like one side of my face or head will turn all red, you know. And I mean, it's like there's a perfect line down the center of my face, and one side is red, the other side is not. Um, the other thing is that your pulse rate slows way down, but your vessels constrict, and so your blood pressure goes sky high okay and and i know people have stroked out from it before oh so that's so it's pretty serious yeah and the scary part as i started to say is that when that happens to me i don't really know where to start to figure out what's wrong i got you know i mean because you're lacking like those those physical cues to tell you that where something happened yeah yeah did you, uh, I'm guessing you grew, you grew up hunting and fishing. Yeah. You grew up in the outdoors. Yep. Sketch that out for me a little bit. Um, so I grew up north of Great Falls in Conrad. Okay. And, um, you know, dryland farming community. And there's a lot of pheasants, Hungarian partridge, things like that. So did you, did you have did a, a did you come from an agricultural family? Um, no, we lived, we lived in town. My folks lived on a small farm mm-hmm. right before I was born, but I did live in town. But all my buddies were farm kids, you know, so I ran around with them a lot on there. How old are you? Uh, 45. Okay. And then, what, so you guys hunted birds? Birds, we hunted deer, sometimes elk, but pretty unsuccessfully, uh, you know, as a kid. Um, and it was... An extended family thing. I spent a lot, a lot of time hunting with my uncle, who's from Butte. Um, you know, grandparents, cousins, things like that. To what degree did you uh, self-identify as a outdoorsman? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like if people, if someone said, "Oh, tell me about yourself," right? Mm-hmm. How quickly would you get to the hunting and fishing part of it? Um, I I would say. I'd get there. It it might not have been the first thing I said. Mm-hmm. Maybe the third. Okay. <laughs> um, 
human, American, hunter, and fisherman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as, as a kid, like, like lots of people, I had so many different interests, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, fortunately, I was introduced to rodeo and I, so I rode horses a lot. And, oh, I got you. And so that was a big part of my interest as well as, you know, I wrestled in school and stuff like that. So I had a variety of things. But physical. But certainly, certainly hunting and fishing was part of who I was. But it, so- it sounds like you lived in a, like you lived an intensely physical existence when you think of wrestling, rodeo, hunting and fishing. Yeah. Active. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So what, when did you, like how and when did you suffer your injuries? Um, so in 1990, I was living in Helena, going to high school, graduated high school. And it was my last year of high school rodeo. So um, after the state high school finals in every state, then the top four qualifiers go to our invite. Uh, they qualify for um, the high school national finals rodeo. Okay. And I did not qualify for the national finals, but then there's been a longstanding, they call it invitational. They call it Silver State Invitational Rodeo in Fallon, Nevada. So a buddy of mine who had also just graduated high school, Danny Slayton, and I had both qualified for Silver State. We traveled down there. Um, you know, we're at the rodeo and stuff. And what, and what event were you involved in? Steer wrestling. Okay. And Danny was a bull rider. Can you explain what steer wrestling is? Yeah. Just when, for someone who doesn't know rodeo at all. Yeah, yeah. It's called steer wrestling or bulldogging. And so basically, there, you're, uh, uh, the steer wrestler's on a horse, and there's a chute in front of and to the right of the steer wrestler. When he nods his head, they let the steer out. It takes off for the backside of the arena. And on the other side of the steer is what they call a hazer, another guy on a horse. And so the steer wrestler and the hazer come out of that box and approach the steer, and the steer wrestler then gets down uh, off the right side of the horse. And the goal is to slide up to the steer's horns, grab them in a particular way, and then uh, wrestle it to the ground, basically. And it's a timed event, and the time ends when... The steer's four feet are pointed the same direction, and it's on its side. Does steer wrestling, does it find its uh, origins in an actual activity? Like roping, yeah. it's easy to picture, right? Yeah. But there's, so there's a, in if you're working cattle, there's a scenario in which you do something like that? Yeah, I, I don't think it happens every day that some guy in a big field bails off and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> throws a... 500 pound steer but 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 yeah its origin was you know traditional cowboy work yeah and i'm guessing just to subdue it to check on it or give it some medicine something like that. yeah exactly now is that the one where you had to tie them no to? no no you just had to get them on their backs or their side four yes. feet up in the air yep four feet 
usually like mm. horizontal in the air, yeah. All right, so uh, thanks for entertaining that little yeah. digression. But so you, you're headed down into you're headed down to Nevada, right? Yeah. So we went Silver Dan, State. Danny and I went down there, and uh, so we went to the rodeo. We're traveling home, and um, probably fifty miles from home on I-15, we wrecked his pickup, and so that was it. I I sustained my spinal cord injury. And um was that was it icy? No, July. Uh-huh. And it was evening. I'm not sure what happened. I have no memory of it. Oh, I see. Yeah. None whatsoever. And the next thing I knew it was 2 months later and I was in 2 months a, later. A rehab in Denver. Yeah. You know, and I was looked around and asked where I am and why am I there and you know, and then I discovered what had happened? Hold on, I, I, I'm clear on this, but I just want you to back up a minute. Two months went by that you were not conscious or not uh, not aware of, of what had happened or where you were. Right. Well, I guess that's a little bit exaggeration. July 9th till September 2nd, so probably that's seven weeks. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not counting days <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, but yeah. It's, no, it's just like, yeah, it's just kind of stunning. So all of a sudden, you wake up in the hospital. Yeah. And lo and behold. Yeah. Yeah. You can't feel anything. You can't move. Right. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, I can only. I mean, it's, yeah. It's it probably, was, you're probably going to find the limits of language when you try to explain what that was like. Right. I think. Uh, yeah. Originally. You're, you're, you're almost where I almost was trying to understand what was happening, what reality was, but at the same time trying to convince myself that it wasn't happening, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, it does. There's a, you read a lot, you know who uh, Victor Frankl is? Man, why do I feel like I know that? No, I don't. Well, anyway, tell me a little bit more. He he was a Jewish psychiatrist. No, I don't. Okay, so anyway, in his book, he he writes about this this what he calls delusion of reprieve, which is when your mind convinces you that everything's going to be okay, and he says up until the the last second that a condemned man hangs, you know, and I think that's what happened, you know, but at the same time, I had a lot of stuff to learn, which is the whole purpose of rehab, you know, I I had to kind of relearn what my body was and relearn how things were going to happen and how I was going to be able to do things. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into that heavy, but I'm still tripping out about delusion of reprieve, the term. Yeah. Have you ever read Incident at Owl Creek or An Occurrence at Owl Creek? Familiar with the book? I have not read it. It's a, so it's a, it's set during the Civil War and a man gets captured and they go to hang him by throwing him off a bridge with a noose around his neck. Mm-hmm. And like the rope snaps, okay? And he lands in the river and lives out this whole existence of making it back home, reuniting with his wife. But then 
in the end, like the rope didn't break. Yeah. And he had this long, in the time it took him to be thrown from the bridge and to meet the end of the rope, he had this long delusion of reprieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I think it's called an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or something like that. It's a good story. I never heard that term, or delusion of reprieve. Yeah. So you wake up in the hospital, and how like how many days or weeks go by before you are kind of like, okay, here's where I am. This is what's going on. This is my new reality. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. 
Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. You know, I've always thought that for me, for whether it happened or not, I think uh, I think my mind didn't knew what was happening and had dealt with some stuff before I was consciously oh. aware of it. Uh-huh. So, so I do remember that, you know, the day I found out everything, you know, which the rest of the day was pretty much a blur. And I remember then... You know, going back to bed, I was up in a wheelchair when they, when I d- discovered everything. And I remember going back you to bed. You were up in a wheelchair? Yeah, it was like a hospital wheelchair. You know, they had me laid laid back in it and I was propped, you know. And were they anticipating that you'd wake up? They didn't know, they didn't know actually what, what to expect. Um, it was, so... I was at a place called Craig Hospital, which is a, a, a rehab center, a big one, a good one, neuro rehab. Second floor is head injury. Third floor is spinal cord injury. Obviously, I had both, some level of head injury, okay. as well as the spinal cord injury. It was Labor Day weekend that I woke up, and I know that my dad told me uh, he, the doctor, my doctor was having a conversation with my dad. I was on third floor, my, and was he was explaining to my dad, we might have Chris in the wrong place. We don't know what we can do for him. And he was thinking they better move me downstairs. To the second floor. Right, which my mom didn't want, my dad didn't want. I because they, want, they wanted to hold on to the hope. Right, yeah. Yeah, so um, they didn't know what to expect. And so, yeah, that doctor told my parents or whatever that he was going to be gone for the long weekend. And when he got back, if there wasn't significant change, I was going downstairs. And when he got back, I was a totally different person. You must have overheard. Yeah. I took it as a threat, yeah. You overheard the conversation. Yeah. So did you then, you had to have entered into just some kind of horrible depression, right? Um, Well, and that's that's kind of what I was saying, that I think my mind dealt with a lot of it. I see. And and so I remember that day when I got back in, into bed and stuff, and for the first time was alone. Because it's, you know, it's a commotion. You got nurses and aides doing you know in the room and and my dad was there that weekend you know so when I was finally alone I think is when it emotionally hit me you know and yeah there were some real hard hard minutes there for a while but minutes yeah I, I, it passed pretty quickly that doesn't mean I was suddenly like jolly and glad things had happened and everything was going to be okay. You know, I had a lot of concern, a lot of worry, but I guess to answer your question, no, I didn't experience 
any long-term or serious depression. Man. And, and I don't, I, I mean, I don't say that in a way that I take credit for it. I think, no, I don't, I don't I think, think my mind, you know, worked on it when I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I, I'm sure that's a case by case basis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's like, yeah. Were you were you a person that that uh, dealt well with adversity through your whole life? You feel like? I think so, but I also don't feel like I'd had a lot of it. Mm. You know, I had a pretty good childhood growing up. So you, so, you weren't forged by fire at that point. No, I don't think so. How okay? As you are, are coming to where you're. I'm trying to get at something that it's hard to articulate. So there's probably all the immediate practical stuff. Mm-hmm. Like how am I gonna like how am I gonna move around? What where am I gonna live? Um what is life gonna look like? Okay, so you're dealing with all these like very immediate practical concerns. And I want you to touch on that in terms of how far into this journey did you have to get? Before you're like, and now I want to begin solving the question of how am I going to enjoy being alive, okay? So how how far into this were you before you thought like, you know what? I used to like to be in the out of doors. Mm-hmm. Let's start solving for this. I mean, was that a thing that took years or months? It It all kind of happened at the same time and and i think i was real fortunate to be able to go to craig hospital and they have a fabulous therapeutic recreation program which i mean before this i had no idea what those terms even meant together but craig was constantly doing things for their therapeutic or therapeutic rec or tr you know, they had outings booked and, you know, sometimes it was just going to the mall, you know, going out to eat or whatever. They had several season tickets to the Broncos and later on to the Rockies and, you know, to the Avalanche. And um, then... Uh, so they're like really quick to introduce the idea that you will still enjoy being alive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and they've got a fabulous team of people. Um, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal is just not far from Craig. And so this Peter guy that we were talking about earlier, Peter Powell's, he and a bunch of his buddies worked at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal and made this fabulous bass fishery. And it's got wooden walkways and whatever. So they regularly are taking people from Craig Hospital to places like that to go fishing. And they've got adaptive gun mounts and things like that. Take people to go shooting. Um, so how could, like, what do you mean? How could you take someone to go? Well. Like, how could they take someone to go fishing? They, uh, they had several buses, shuttle-type buses, that belonged to Craig Hospital. Uh-huh. And they'd post on the wall that, hey, we're going to have an outing to the fishery, and, you know, anybody that wants to go can come. 
if you're a patient that wants to go, you know, they say, well, you could take two people with you, chosen companions, friends or family members, and you just, they have it scheduled on the date, you sign up for it, and they work with you in advance to figure out what your functional ability is and what your adaptive needs are, set you up with a fishing rig, and you go fishing. How long were you living in this in, in this place, in, in Craig? Uh, five months, from September through December 15th. So you were almost... Um getting that like in the in the part of recovery you're you're almost you're like focusing more on just like trying to live and enjoy life almost before you've solved a lot of those practical things that i was talking about yeah yeah and i don't think in my opinion at least i did not solve the practical things by the time i left rehab so I went home, like, thinking, well, here I go, sink or swim. Mm-hmm. And, and so I hadn't answered all those questions. But um, there was a particular day, um, and I, I didn't go on any fishing outings with them uh, while I was there, and I did not go on any shooting outings. But I was down in T-Rec one day, messing around, and discovered this one guy was like hey don't you like to shoot and whatever and i said yeah and he said here let me show you this and he showed me the this paperwork the schematics from this high high level adaptive gun mount that this guy from bob bowen uh from shadron nebraska had developed and bob was ended up high level quadriplegic and he was a firearms dealer and very, very active sport shooter and hunter and etc. And then when he had his injury, he and his buddies set together, set out together and built this adaptive gun mount. And so, um, and he made it available to people. You could purchase one. And someone introed this to you. Yeah. In, in, in the hospital in Craig. Right. And I was, for the first time, I mean, I, I had a great time Do anything I did with T-Rack. Any of the stuff we did was great for me, great for other people, and really helped me understand that life still happens. But when I saw that gun mount, it hit me. I was like, there's something that I do, you know, mm-hmm. way better than hanging out at the mall. So I thought someday I'm going to get one of those. And so my first birthday after I left rehab, um, a friend of mine, an old duck hunting buddy, bought me one of those gun mounts. Can you explain the gun mount, like what it mounts to, how it functions? Sure. Um, The one that I'm talking about that I first discovered and and first had, they called it the SR-77. It's – so imagine – there's two pieces of aluminum I-beam, basically. One going front to back and one side to side. And on top of that, right on top of that running, one running along each I-beam is 
a piece of all thread okay. running out to the ends. And then on the end of that all thread was a windshield wiper motor hooked to each one. And then the windshield wiper motors were operated by a joystick, which is mounted on the gun mount, and then you put it in a place where the user can move it. So for me, it was right at my chin. So I would, the rifle is cut off at the pistol grip. It's got no butt, and it mounts on top of this gun mount, which attaches to my wheelchair and sits over my lap, basically. And so I'd lean my head forward and look through the scope, just like anybody, and then move this joystick left and right which and up and down, which turns the windshield wiper motor, turns the all-thread, which makes the rifle aim left, right, and up and down. And then it's got a little tube, you know, a little plastic straw that's hooked up to, they call it a breath tube actuator, which turns your breath into an electrical signal, and that's hooked up to a solenoid, and that solenoid is attached to the trigger. So when I sip in this tube, it jerks that solenoid, which fires the rifle. Huh. It was pretty, <laughs> actually, actually quite ingenious and rudimentary at the same time. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. I shot a, quite a few animals with that. So... You get this you get this adapter and you get it rigged up mm-hmm. and how do you even begin like like you go out to a rifle range yeah, yep, went out to a rifle range and shot it a few times and you know a lot of times and got it sighted in and so it was working, so I had the tools, but I really had no idea how the process was going to work. Like, how is this going to happen? You know, I mean... I you mean, like, how is it going to happen that I'm actually going to go out and hunt? That I can actually shoot something. Yeah. And um, so then Mary's with me, my girlfriend. And so um, Mary's from a big hunting hunting family, and her brother at that time was ranching in the Elkhorn Mountains, just east of Helena. Some big elk in the Elkhorns. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, we we were hunting with Tim, and that's Murray's brother. But hunting how? Explain it to me. Well, the first time hunting from a van and just driving up and down the dirt roads, looking for deer, looking for whatever. Which would, uh, we might as well get to this. Let's get to this now because it's going to yeah. raise the obvious question. There's legal implications here. Right. So, and in most states, the Wildlife Management Agency um, has permits that enable people with disabilities to, to do certain things. So, like in Montana, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has what they call a permit to hunt from a vehicle, PTHFV. And you have to meet certain uh, physical criteria 
limitations. And if you meet those, and it's all very formal uh, in Montana Code Annotated, if you meet those conditions, they then give you this permit, which allows you to shoot from a vehicle. Now, you still have the same restrictions. You don't shoot across a roadway. You don't shoot off a paved road, etc. Okay. But if I'm in a field, in a van, and somebody opens the door, I can shoot out of it legally. Was it hard to be successful? Like, did you... Did it take a long time to figure this out? Um, no, it happened pretty quickly. Like, super lucky. Um, I remember you said, you know, in one of your shows, I've watched the meteor a couple times, and you and Ryan Callahan were hunting mule deer on public ground in Idaho mm-hmm. and shot a really nice... Muley. And you guys were sitting there chatting. And you said, you know that saying when people say you should have been here yesterday? And you said, we were here yesterday. Today is yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's what my experience has been. I mean, luck, whatever you call it, it, it's just kind of worked out that way. Doesn't mean that I go home empty-handed, just like everybody, and I'm glad about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would say hunted with Tim probably three times and ended up shooting um, a four-point mule there. That was the first animal I shot from my chair. Did Did it ever, did you ever wrestle with it internally? Or did anyone else ever articulate to you the idea that, like, like why? Like, why do you want to go do this? Like, this is something for other people, and now you're sort of not, not that you're not, not that you're not eligible, but for some reason, like, why go through all the hassle? Because the experience won't be what it was, right? So why not just, like, focus on other things? Did you ever have any doubt, like, it's going to be so, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that you're looking at it, you're like, my experience of it in the past, that you're walking around, that you're doing all these things, that you're dragging the deer, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, so much of that will be different now that maybe it's not the same thing. Like, maybe, it, it, like, I'm not going out to do the same activity anymore because I can only capture certain portions of the activity now from what you knew in the past. Right. Um, well, so to answer that, I'm going to say, I do have that permit to hunt from a vehicle, but I do not like to hunt from a vehicle. Uh-huh. And so I, I want to be on the ground. I want to be in the midst of it as much as I can. Okay. And, and so I've been able to keep it as authentic as possible and i still feel like i've been able to capture the essence of what what much of it was before i used a chair and afterward and and so i guess i've never i've looked at it like you know anyone that hunts knows there's challenges 
And so I've just looked at my situation as a different type of challenge, hunting. And unimaginable things come up. Um, And so it's just, I like that challenge of trying to find a way around it. And I guess ultimately, you know, you asked me when we first started, at what point did I start to identify as an outdoorsman? And so I guess, I guess for me, being able to face those challenges and stuff gives me an opportunity to really exercise my identity, who I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly there are, because of limitations, um, you know, like I, I, w- I would love to go on a solo trip overnight and and be solely and completely responsible for the outcome, whether that's judgment or skill or knowing the right place. I like that idea, but it's also not going to happen. And so for me, the the communal aspect, small communal, but, you know, the, the, the opportunity to connect and retain a bond with people that I spend time in the outdoors is, it's beyond value, you know. And, and on that note, so my buddy Dan Paquetti, um, and he's the guy that I usually hunt with. And he and Mary and I spent a lot of time hunting together. And Dan is a pretty hardcore diehard hunter and has, you know, dedicated thousands of hours over the years to to give me and us together an opportunity. And Dan was the guy that taught me how to team rope and really... Got me into rodeo. I was a young kid. Oh, so you were friends with him way back? Yeah, since I was eleven. Okay. And um, and so you know, after my injury happened, there is some sense of losing connection with your friends because things change. Yeah. And so being able for for he him and I to be able to find a new way to connect and pursue a mutual goal. It's a pretty awesome thing. That's a good friend, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Get to be through that amount of changes with someone. Yeah. Yeah. And like and and Mary, as I said. You know, I mean so put in perspective uh three people hunting together and you know with my situation, you know, it doesn't mean I'm jumping out of bed in the morning and throwing my own clothes on. You know, things take a while, and I need help with things. So there's many, many mornings where, you know, Mary and I are awake at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning with a flashlight, and she's helping me get my clothes on. You know, and then about 5.30, 6 o'clock, Dan wakes up and 
starts to slip things on. But we've already been at it, you know, three hours or whatever. Yeah. And, and so it's not going to happen with without Mary helping me. And and then obviously Dan helping as he does. So I'm the trigger guy. Mary's the getter-upper. Dan's the safety guy. Yeah. Safety's something I want to talk about. Uh, yeah. Because earlier... Before before we started recording, you had talked a little bit about fishing. Mm-hmm. I want to get into that and then get into like uh, some obvious safety issues that come up with like being in the boat, for instance. But how um, it, can you explain the equipment that allows you to fish? Sure. Um, similar, the controls are similar to that gun mount, and this is all very very recently changed. And for the better, and and is changing as we speak. But the first equipment I used to be able to actually cast and reel in was uh, an electrical device, and you know an analog system. And the guys down at Craig designed it and built it, and um, it worked also with a sip and puff tube. And so I would, I would sip into it, into this tube, which would activate a little spool that had a, a small rope on it that was attached to uh, the base of the fishing rod. So as I'm sipping, the spool is tightening up that string, which cocks the rod back which simultaneously is stretching a spring that's attached to the front of the rod. This headset's coming off. Oh. Um, How's that? that that's good. A little more mm-hmm. forward. Up there. There we go. Thank you. You're welcome. So as the rod's coming back, you know, the rope is, the little rope twine is tightening, the rod's coming back, then the spring is stretching, and there's there's a device that they built to uh, trigger the, um, the bale, to release the bale, without letting the line drop. Oh. So when it comes back to the position... The bale releases, I quit sipping, and that spring jerks, pulls the rod forward, and casts. And no shit. Is it pretty is it pretty accurate? It it is. Um the old system was basically everything I described, but it was pretty limited, meaning it always casted basically the same angle, the same distance. The same speed, I see, etc. So it's basically on and off, right? Right, and so then, you know, when that happens, like um, to help you place it, you know, in the right hole or right, right on the eddy line or whatever. The if you but fish, you're not controlling the distance of your cast; you're controlling right. where you are relative to where you want to wind up. Right. So. The fisherman in that instance 
and the oarsman are working together. And the oarsman, you know, is trying to place the boat so that the distance, we both know the cast is going to go. And the angle of the boat is going to help the fisherman time it enough to drop drop it in the right spot. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And then, as I said, it's... So, to, how, well, how, well, how does the process work of... of so, it's, it's all visual, then. You're observing a hit. Correct. You're observing Correct. a hit. And then, how are you reeling? Um, I, let's see, I blow in that same tube, which activates the reel, the motorized reel, mm-hmm. and it starts to reel, but, you know, I, I, you don't want to just reel straight in, you know, you're... Your spinner is going to go to the surface, and you know you aren't going to be fishing in the right spot. So then you just kind of work it, and you know gradually you get to understand the speed of the reel, and you're able to blow enough to keep it off the bottom without pulling it to the top. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the tip of the rod, and then when something strikes it, then you know then. That system that that I've just explained did not have a hooking action, so then it just meant reeling pretty much as fast as I could. Oh, to get a hook set. Yeah, yeah. When you, I could see this all fishing from a situation you described earlier of the guys that made the bass fishery where they had wooden docks. Mm-hmm. But but you're saying that you're out in a boat. Yes. In a wheelchair, in a boat. Yes. On a river. Yes. Is it like a foregone conclusion that if that boat were to flip, that you drown? Um, not really. Um, absolutely, there's inherent risk. And by doing it, by agreeing to participate, you're taking that risk. But that's life. Well, how much does a wheelchair weigh? Mm, 250, 300. And you're buckled in. I mean, you're buckled oh, in right I, now. I undo the straps. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you have a PFD on a life jacket. Yeah, yep. And then, you know, as, as Peter, my buddy, says, um, you know, he said it's calculated risk. You do as much as you can to minimize problems and hope that something does happen and it still may happen but you've done everything you can to prevent it do you uh when it comes to like the calculating the risk are you more now that you've been through so much are you more cavalier about risk now no i'm actually more careful are you yeah yeah Especially the older I get. Okay. Things have slowed down a little. In, in what way? Well, I just, I'm a little, I, I'm just more careful. I'm a little less willing to to do something that's maybe, I don't want to say not sensible, but, you know, that there that there is a greater risk. If you catch, when you catch a fish, let's say, do you feel more, um, you go out and catch a fish, do you, is it, 
Do you feel the excitement of catching a fish and the satisfaction of catching the fish from the same perspective that you would have felt it prior to your accident? Or do you feel like, I caught this fish and I'm quadriplegic? Or do both of those things happen at once? I think they both happen at once. Um, but again, back to you know me knowing that this stuff wouldn't happen without other people. Rather than me thinking, I caught this fish and I'm quadriplegic, I do view it as, we caught this fish. Yeah. Do you know? When I shoot a bull elk, I don't feel for a moment that I shot it, that I did it by myself. You know, we, so we accomplished that. Yeah. We being um, a couple things, I imagine. Like we being your immediate group. Right. Your yep. sort of clan, you know. Right. Out in the hills. And then we being like some much bigger we of people who've dedicated themselves to sort of establishing right, the adaptive technologies. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, are you now in a position where you've been involved in 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 sort of designing or consulting or influencing these technologies? Yeah, um, a little bit, mostly because uh, the technology is not happening at big companies. Because there's know, no market. At, yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a market, but limited. It probably the research and development is not going to be paid by the return on investment. So it comes from a probably comes from a, like a, a nonprofit. Yeah, and just good people. Yeah, that are. I guess when I say nonprofit, like it's not from the perspective of man. If yeah. I could build a rod that would be usable to a quadriplegics, I'd make a killing. Right. Right. So some of these things must get made, and they're made like. Just handfuls of devices, dozens mm-hmm. of devices. Yeah. At what point, like, because right now you'll come and, so right now you're here talking to us about this. At, at what point did you begin to think um, about you'd overcome, like, these insurmountable difficulties and you found a way to enjoy the things that you used to enjoy and learn to enjoy new things that you hadn't enjoyed before. At what point did you feel that you had an obligation to come out and like tell other people or help other people get through these things? Um, I, I think I, I think I felt it when it, when it first started happening. Cause I remember that, that deer, the first deer I was saying I shot. Um, with Mary and her brother, you know, and somebody called the newspaper and was like, hey, this guy. So they contacted me. We'd like to do a story. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't doing it for publicity. I wasn't doing it to get my name in the paper. I was doing it because of sheer enjoyment. Yeah, you were already doing it anyway before. Yeah, but... I then, at the same time, felt like I've been granted some pretty amazing opportunities. And, and by 
enjoying those opportunities, I feel some inherent responsibility to, to, to share that in a way that might help other people. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com, and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's xssites.com, code MEATEATER. XSSites, the fastest sites in any light. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort. Meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah. And have, uh, cause it seems to me like you're resilient and that you, 
didn't allow a long passage of time after your accident where you just, you know, gave up. <laughs> have, have, have you found that um, your case, like your personal journey or situation is sort of an anomaly? Or, do, or have, you find that you, have you talked to other people who have not been willing to or been reluctant to, to, to like overcome all the, you know, to overcome all the obstacles? I I think sure there are just like any other subset of a population that you know there's people that really really struggle and maybe don't get to the point where they can start to enjoy life again and and I acknowledge that but I but I think people are human beings are incredibly resilient and find ways to do things you know it's funny because i never i didn't know anything about disability before my experience you know and then all of a sudden i'm faced with it and pretty soon you start to recognize that there are people out there doing absolutely amazing things amazing things that seem totally impossible and somehow they find a way and I, so i don't know i mean are there i guess i couldn't answer are there more or less people who do or do not find ways to do things i'm aware of a lot of them who have really done some incredible things do you uh do you regard yourself now as being um like involved in a sort of is there sort of like an adaptive movement or an an adaptive community that that works to sort of create and and connect people with adaptive technologies so that they can you know overcome disabilities i mean is there like a is there a place where people go for support on these issues? Or is it just everybody? Is it kind of every man for himself? No, no. I think what I've found is that um, people find ways to connect. I don't know of any specific adaptive network or whatever, but certainly with the internet, people share information and how. Hey, how does this work for you? Stuff. So there's a lot of uh, benefit from a peer perspective in that way but but i also feel that um there's a lot of programs conservation hunting fishing any kind of outdoor programs that that have in some way done their best to help give people opportunities mm-hmm. and you know i i mentioned fish wildlife and parks uh you know, they, in 1989, they initiated what they call their Crossing the Barriers effort, which is their effort to make all their programs, facilities, etc., accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. And that includes some of the per- permitting programs that they have and etc. And, you know, just... 
the big law, the big civil rights law, which prevented and was intended to prevent discrimination by public and private entities, is the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act. So if you think about the fact that Fish, Wildlife, and Parks uh, initiated their crossing the barriers before law happened, requiring them to do that, that's, that's pretty significant, I think. Yeah, it's progressive-minded, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of organizations out there. Um, a huge one is it's the Safari Club International. I, I really didn't know anything about the Safari Club International. And um, I was nominated by a friend of mine, Dr. John Harlan, who's retired in Missoula, surgeon and a member of the Safari Club, and he nominated me for this award that SCI offers. Uh, they give it out annually. It's called the Pathfinder Award. And the, the winner of the award is chosen because he or she has been a hunter and experienced some life-changing event that limits that ability but still been able to find ways to pursue what, pursue those activities. And then also, you know, has contributed to others' opportunities and that kind of thing. So Dr. Harlan nominated me for this award, which means a worldwide award. And, and I think typically they choose two people a year. And I knew he was because... I helped with the information for, you know, the the nomination or application. But I I didn't think there was any chance, you know. So I win I win the award in 2011. So SCI flies me to Vegas for their annual convention. And they have a banquet, the Pathfinder Award banquet, and so that's where I received the award. The prize for having won the award is an all-expense-paid trip for me and a companion in Africa for 12 days, including all, all hunting expenses and food, lodging, airfare, taxidermy, and shipping of any trophies back to my home. That's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And and it just so happens that the the guide, the the professional hunters that I was matched with, uh the guy started his name's I'll probably say it wrong, but Jan Ulofsa. And so super great guy. I met him in Vegas, then we went and spent two weeks with him. And so I was talking to him about the history about of this. How did the Pathfinder Award come about? How, you know, et cetera. And it turns out that I think in the 90s, um, a guy who was a hunter and real involved and stuff had experienced a significant injury and was really having a hard time. 
So a couple guys, Jan and some other guy, um, got together and chatted about it and said, what can we do to really help this guy out? So they awarded the first Pathfinder Award to that guy and took him on a trip. You know, that's pretty amazing. And I, Safari Club International does that kind of thing in its local chapters all the time. So I have, personally with the Western Montana chapter, I participated in, I've been there on two hunts where young boys with disabilities were able to hunt elk and both were successful. The only reason I was there is because I have a four-wheel drive van with a lift. Okay. So I was just helping them get where they needed to be. But, yeah, it's, and and so I guess, sorry for my deviation, whole point is, um, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of programs and organizations that, that like being involved in this kind of thing and that see the reward that happens. And so, um, I guess there's not a, an adaptive network, but there are, there, there are people and organizations out there that facilitate the process. Do you have a thing you say or would like to say when you meet people who are trying to overcome these kind of, you know, these like severe adversity? these adversities in life? Like, like, do you have sort of like a stump speech you give to people who feel like there's no way to go forward and it's coming from someone who's been there, you know? Um, I, I guess not the specific language, but two messages that I hope that I share because, the, because they're, they're things that have helped me. And the first one is, they're kind of related, but the first is to not lose hope. You know, I mean, if you lose hope, you might as well hang it up. You know, that things will get better. Things do get better. Things get easier, more enjoyable. And then just generally to not lose hope in a belief in possibility. Because I think if if a person's able to envision that that something they want to do can happen and maybe will happen, even if they don't know how it will, I think that keeps them moving forward and and toward finding a way. Right. Yeah. Have you had a problem uh, keeping your own advice at times? Do you sure. ever? You fall into sure. you fall into moments of bitterness, or mm-hmm. are they yeah. fre- are they frequent? No, no. Are they long lasting when they no. do come? No. Is it fair to say bitter? Like, what's it feel like? Um, I would say discouraged. Discouraged. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been bitter, but certainly discouraged. And fortunately, they're not long-lasting. Man, 
uh, I really want to thank you for coming and taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Do you have? Thank you guys for. Yeah. Do you, do you have anything you want? Uh, things you'd like to add that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Um. No, I was I was thinking as we're driving over here, you know, because I know you usually ask questions like that at the end, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, my thought would be, you know, speaking to any organizations out there or people who who find some level of whatever joy satisfaction um in seeing people who have limitations be able to pursue these activities mm-hmm. i'd encourage people to to please help support those opportunities um however they can get involved with a conservation group get involved with a sporting group or or whatever and they're not difficult to find you know, and and maybe you can be an instrument to to help somebody face what is otherwise a pretty insurmountable barrier. So I guess that's the first thing, and um, and then secondly, kind of along the same lines, if if there are individuals who are maybe end up listening and think. You know, yeah, but I don't, you know, that that couldn't happen for me. Yeah, it can, you know. And, and, I'm, and I'm so fortunate that I've had the social support and the people around me to, to encourage me to do things, you know. And so if a person doesn't have those people, let's say if I was plucked out of my regular everyday life and dropped into a, new location where I didn't know anybody and I had to figure out how can I do this if if I want to. You know, don't be afraid to knock on doors. Don't be afraid to find out who the groups are around there, what they do, what can you do to offer them. And, you know, so I guess that will just hopefully lead to opportunity. Yeah, well, I just like to point out that like we kind of breezed over Chris's very, very like illustrious hunting career, and it sounds like he's shot like from what we heard in the last hour, like a deer and an elk. But from talking on the telephone, I mean, you've now killed like you're saying dozens of elk, dozens of deer, and you're even shooting ducks now, right? I read an article oh, where I you're shot. trying, yeah, <laughs> working on it, yeah, like wing shooting. I did I did wing shoot one duck. Which may have been luck, but <laughs> you know, they usually they usually land into the wind. They usually come in about the same altitude or same level above the ground. So if I'm aiming in the right direction and it's a safe direction and I know you know, a, a reasonable distance to shoot, and a duck happens to enter that area, then I think it's reasonable to take a shot. Yeah. 
how many days would you say now, like this coming up fall, like what do you have planned or like how many days do you think you'll spend out and about? Um, well, since I'm planning to draw a bull moose permit, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, I'll probably spend between hopefully antelope, deer, elk, maybe a moose, um, I'll probably spend 12, 15 days in the field, you know, something like that. It's more than the average hunter is going to spend in the field. Yeah, that puts you in top tier. (laughs) That puts you in top tier uh, days in the field, top tier outdoorsman. I would say some years it's a lot less, like, like anybody. You know, either life gets in the way or you get, you were there yesterday, the first time you go out. Yeah, yeah. But, no, I, I, yeah, I just, I enjoy it. What's the next uh, piece of equipment that you're thinking, like, this would be cool, I should or we should start working on this to, you know, help you do something that you feel like maybe is out of reach, but you're thinking about it? Well, it's it's being perfected right now. The guys down at Craig Hospital uh, have been working on that fishing system we talked about, which is analog. They've now got that all converted to digital, which gives it more capabilities. I can set a hook. I can adjust the angle of the cast. Um and let's see what else the distance of cast and so uh and i've i've used the prototype well in the yard you know with peter peter had it uh, my buddy peter had it plugged into a laptop and so he and i were just casting it together i was casting it he was making adjustments and stuff and they're perfecting it right now so yeah i i really want to use that device and then uh they're going to use that same technology to further improve uh a rifle mount so i'd I'd be i'd really like to try that is the is some of the equipment prohibitively expensive yes yes it is um but some of the people who make it because they know they're not making money are very generous with it. Yeah, generous to make it and then generous to get into people's hands. Basically, yeah, for what it costs them to build it, sometimes less, if they can get some of the parts donated or otherwise acquire them, yeah. Uh, these guys sound like some pretty amazing guys. They are. The crew down there. They're They're amazing, and I know... You know, we were talking earlier, you guys are going to be spending more time in Bozeman. I would strongly encourage you to go check these guys out on Fish Hatchery Road. Well, it's Varney Road, I think. It's the road that goes to the Varney Bridge. It's about an eighth of a mile from the bridge. They have their camp. It's called Camp Bull Wheel Uh because there's a big actual bull wheel still sitting in the yard 
from 1920s or something. And, yeah, these guys are going to be doing some pretty cool stuff. You mean, like, making adaptive technologies available to people that need them? Yeah. Helping them use it. Yeah. Oh, and there's so many people contributing to the to the project. You know, volunteer guides, volunteer shuttlers. One guy, um, he's planning to come. Embarrassingly, I think maybe from Indiana. He's going to be here for the whole summer. His job's to cook. Um, so, and they're just running river trips with yep. people in wheelchairs and yep. fishing. Yep. People in wheelchairs or other limitations yeah. that might not be wheelchair, but yeah. Yep. What's this organization called again? Camp Bow Wheel. And then the, again, the, the hospital that done a lot of the Craig Hospital. And, and they do a lot of they've helped develop a lot of adaptive technology. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good for people to look up and check out, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Alright, man. Well thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. For joining us. Appreciate you taking all the time. I know you have a long drive. It'll be a good drive though. A good nice drive. Stay out there. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see some wildlife, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. All right. Chris okay. Chris Clasby. Thanks, okay. Chris. Thank you Thank for joining you guys. us, man. Bye. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.